0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Um, today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter two, verses one to seven. Um, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Curinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because there was no house, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is God's word. Amen.
1: If you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, I invite you to keep them open while we pray together this morning. God, as we gather together, This final Sunday morning of the Advent season, it is with great joy in our hearts to remember that on a quiet night in a small town in Judea 2,000 years ago, your Son came to dwell among His people. As we consider this this morning, as we read of this wonderful, amazing turn of events in these verses from Luke chapter 2, we pray that you would draw us near to you by reminding us of your great love for us and giving us joy to respond with praise. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, our Incarnate Savior. Amen. Often, throughout history, the births of kings and queens has been marked by national celebrations, announcements, and even the establishment of holidays. From European kingdoms to Chinese dynasties and nomadic tribes, the arrival of future leaders who would inherit thrones was proclaimed from one side of the kingdom to the other, understood as the good news that God had provided the one that he had appointed for leadership and authority. In medieval England, town criers would walk around ringing a bell and announcing that a prince or princess had been born. Since most of the people at the time were illiterate, this was the way that important information was delivered, and the birth of a future king or queen was definitely considered news that was worthy of everyone's attention. Even in the modern world, in kingdoms that still exist today, royal births are a big, a big deal. Just a few years ago, when the Prince of Bhutan was born, that small mountainous nation celebrated by planting 108,000 trees across the whole country in his honor. Because the birth of royalty is a big deal and something that people pay attention to. In 2013, the prince and heir to the British throne named his son George. And almost overnight, the name George became one of the most popular names in England and across the English-speaking world. In different ways and for different reasons, people mark the birth of kings and queens. So when a king was born whose realm would extend over not just a certain territory, but over the entire world and all the heavens above, we might have expected his arrival to go a certain way. He is a king unlike any the world has ever known, whose coming was long awaited and whose authority is incomparable and unrivaled. Such a king might perhaps have been welcomed with a celebration that would reflect his stature, something that the whole world would notice and share in. On top of that, The first chapter of Luke's gospel has set expectations high for the birth of this king. This child's birth was foretold by angelic messengers who tell his mother that God has blessed her and that her son will be the son of God himself, who will inherit an ancestral throne and rule forever. He will be the answer to hopes, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the redeemer and defender of God's people. So when the moment of his arrival finally comes, Luke has set our expectations high for how he will be received. But as we see here in these opening verses of Luke chapter 2, there is no such fanfare. There is no nationwide jubilation. Instead, this promised king was born in obscurity in a small town, and almost no one even bothered to notice. As we saw last week, some travelers from the east came afterward to see him and rejoice at his arrival. But among the people of his own nation, his birth went almost completely unseen and uncelebrated. He was attended by more livestock than people. The birth of Jesus Christ turned expectation on its head. And in God's perfect providence, it served to reveal something about his very heart And the way that his reign as the king of kings will overturn everything we've come to expect from those who hold power. This passage opens with a reminder to us, Luke's reminder of the setting. In those days, he writes in verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It's a call for a census to be taken of the entire Roman Empire, a territory that is so vast that the emperor's decree refers to it as all the world. It fully encompassed the Mediterranean Sea and was as far across as North America is, so even though his ego, the the Caesar's ego, is evident here, he hasn't really missed by that much. It may as well have been the whole world. The decree demanded that every resident travel to their family's hometown to be registered, as we see in verse 3. It's hard for us to imagine just how disruptive such a thing would have been for people from all across the empire. Since it ranged from Britain to Egypt, and the relative peace which had existed for some time had enabled people to move more freely for economic or practical necessity, a registration like the one described here would have interrupted agriculture and trade, any military or defensive strategies. It would have disrupted the economy and the lives of these people for months or maybe even longer. For some people, this census would require a journey similar in length to a trip from Vancouver to Miami. But rather than traveling by airplane or by car, they have to do it on foot, or, if they're fortunate, by riding on an animal like a donkey. But Caesar Augustus had the sort of authority that could command such a disruption to people's lives. In the first century, it was hard to imagine anyone having greater power than he had. There had never been anyone in the history of humanity with more power, power over more people, and people, they couldn't imagine anyone having more power or control than he has at this moment. But it was his name, Augustus, which he received when he took command of the empire that helps us to understand why this is the case. Originally, Augustus was an honorific title used in religious practice and ceremony. It was associated with gods and goddesses, so when the Roman Senate officially recognized this man as Augustus, It was with the implicit understanding that he was either endorsed by the gods or was one himself. When he took on the name Caesar Augustus, he took on the authorities of the gods of Rome, the most vast empire the world had ever seen. It was a political campaign, of course, that ensured that he would hold supreme control that could not be challenged. He had the power to command every aspect of people's lives, so much so that he even renamed a month on the calendar that we still use today after himself. So in commanding a registration of the whole world, though it seems like a massive thing to do, it was a trivial thing for him. He could completely disrupt the lives of millions with the stroke of a pen. And that disruption extended to a province of Syria, which included the region named Judea, and a town named Bethlehem, the hometown of a poor carpenter named Joseph. He and his young wife-to-be are required to make the 80-mile journey from Nazareth, where they live. It will mean lost wages, something that they don't have a lot of margin for. And on top of it all, they are expecting their son to be born at any moment. As I read this passage, I can't help but think about what it was like when my wife was eight and a half months pregnant. I cannot imagine what this journey to Bethlehem was like. There is no consensus among scholars about whether Mary had a donkey to ride, even though that's the way she's often depicted in paintings and images of this moment in history. There's no consensus about whether or not she had a donkey to ride along the way. Some people think that she and Joseph were just too poor to have an animal like that at their disposal, Others think that there's simply no way that she could have possibly physically made this journey if she was doing it on foot. What everyone agrees on is that it would have been incredibly difficult and stressful regardless of how she traveled. For most people, the journey would have taken four, five, or six days. For a very pregnant young woman, I think it's safe to assume it took longer. When they finally do arrive in Bethlehem, they were surely sore and exhausted looking for a place to stay and recover. Except, as Luke tells us, there was no place for them to stay. Every bed in town is full. So many people were traveling as part of this census that's being carried out, that it's no wonder that a small town like Bethlehem would have been at capacity. It was probably too small and out of the way to have had an actual inn, so the guest lodgings were probably sparse to begin with. So Mary and Joseph made their way to the only option that was left to them, a stable where at least they'll be able to keep warm. And of course, of course, it's while they're there, in such humble and humiliating circumstances, that their baby is born. So Mary and Joseph, with literally no other option, wrap their baby in swaddling cloths and lay him down in a manger an animal's feeding trough, because they have nothing else. It could not be more different from the arrival that Mary wanted for her child or that readers of this book expected for him. This is the one whom the angel Gabriel told Mary in chapter 1 would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is a child who deserves royal robes and a joyful welcome from affectionate subjects, a kingdom-wide celebration and the praise of those whom he came to govern. Instead, as Luke reveals to us here in this paragraph, the night of his birth included none of those things. In their place were road-weary parents pushed around by an imperial decree and a filthy feeding trough to sleep in. Later that night, of course, some, slow, some lowly shepherds will hear the news of this birth from a, a heavenly host, and they will come and marvel at this child, at the promise that his birth signals, that good news of great joy for all the people has come into the world, and that the city of David has welcomed the Messiah who has been born. And though their joy is sincere and the praise that, that, that they offer and glorify God with after seeing Jesus for themselves is sincere, it is hardly the welcoming committee that corresponds to the arrival of the one whose birth represents good news for all people. But there is something significant about the simplicity and the humility of Jesus's arrival. His birth The birth of Jesus Christ did not happen in this way as the result of unfortunate timing or bad luck. It didn't even happen because of Caesar Augustus' command for a registration. Every detail of this passage, every detail of the arrival of Jesus Christ, happens according to the sovereign plans of God worked out by his gracious and providential aim to reveal, first, the nature of the kings that we have known before, second, that he has promised to send someone better. And third, the birth of a servant king who comes to rule in grace, to overturn the evils of this world and to give what other kings never could. In the opening verses of this passage, we get a sense, something of a sense of what life for poor residents of the Roman Empire was like. They lived at the discretion of those in charge. For Mary and Joseph there was no appeals process, no chance for them to plead their case about how difficult a journey this would be for a woman who is as pregnant as Mary is. It didn't matter that Mary was pregnant or that the journey would be dangerous. From the seat of power in Rome, there was no concern for Mary or for Joseph or for their child. Poor Jews from an irrelevant region of the edge of the empire. What did matter to Caesar Augustus was the registration of every single person in the empire for the sake of taxes. That's what this census is really all about. Tax revenue that would fund military campaigns and building projects and lavish palaces. Four times in five verses, we read the word register in this passage because Luke does not want us to miss what's going on here. This is about money. To Augustus, Mary and Joseph represent a few extra pennies in the vault at his palace and nothing more. So when the order came, Mary and Joseph had no other option but to pack up and set out for Bethlehem. This passage highlights for us something important, that everyone reading this book in the first century understood well that earthly kings rule to take. Augustus and his governors like Quirinius and the local prefects like Herod, who we read about last week, use their power and their authority for self-preservation and self-interest. They do so with little concern, or none at all, for the well-being of those they rule, especially those like Mary and Joseph. Which is why a young mother-to-be found herself marching across the desert to a, to a town that she didn't know, where she had no shelter other than a barn, and where she would give birth far from home. It is something that the people of God had been warned about long before. In the book of 1 Samuel, after the people had demanded a king for themselves to rule over them, it was because they wanted to be like the nations that surrounded them. They saw all of their neighboring nations and the kings that they had, and they said, we want to be like that. We want a king like they have. They wanted a king to defend them to ride ahead of them into battle and to be their champion. Samuel, who was their religious leader and the last of the judges that God had appointed to administrate over the people, tried to talk them out of it, but they would not be turned away from their idea. They wanted a king. It was a very serious thing, as God explained to Samuel, saying, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people will have the king that they longed for, but not before hearing a warning from God himself who told them, a lengthy warning, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves and on that day you will cry out because of your king it is a comprehensive warning but it boils down to this the king that you are asking for will take and take and take he will use his power to serve himself and he will do so at your expense now 11 centuries later the truth of those words remain but now on an imperial scale. Augustus embodies this warning about earthly rulers. Though, of course, this sort of capricious, selfish attitude is not limited to kings. It is the fallen state of the world. The reason why this passage from 1 Samuel is not about a specific king is because God knows that no matter who sits on the throne in Israel, it will be an imperfect person. It will be someone unfit for the responsibility, no matter how mature and gifted they might have been compared to everyone else. The problem is not one to do with thrones or kings and queens, but with sinful human nature, which bends our wills in on ourselves. Augustus, therefore, is not unique. History is full of examples of rulers who similarly embody the sort of selfishness that we see on display here. Though, of course, that doesn't mean that all of them are as bad as they can be. By God's grace, some rule well and lead with concern for the people that they govern, including poor laborers like Joseph and his family. But even the best, even the very best earthly kings are far from perfect. Here in this passage in Luke chapter 2, we have a stinging reminder of that. Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. Israel's greatest and most beloved king, but David is far from perfect, and his reign is stained with the blood of his own self-interested abuse of power. We can easily romanticize Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. We paint pictures in our minds of cute animals attending this newborn baby, But we should not miss the way that this passage subtly reminds us of things that we know deep down, that things are not as they should be, that God's warning about kings is true, that life in this world is life lived under threat because people, all people, are corrupt and prone to the sort of character that David and Herod and Augustus display. But here in these verses from Luke 2, we are able to hear the promise of someone better. It is no small thing that Joseph is from Bethlehem or that he is a descendant of David. Because it was to David that God had said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Someone in the family line of David will be the king established by God himself who will reign forever, and he will be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah, living 700 years before Jesus was born, declared the word of God saying, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It was a word of promise, a promise made in eternity past and an assurance that God will bring it about. Earlier in the book of Micah, God had condemned those who abused their power and authority for selfish gain. He promised judgment for those who work evil because of the power in their hand, who covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away, who oppress a man and his household, a man and his inheritance. Because God is the defender of the oppressed and the outcast. He is the judge of the oppressor. The book of Micah is a book full of hope that God will answer the wickedness of this world with justice. And that hope rests On his promise to send a better king, a better ruler than the world has known before. One who will, according to Micah chapter 5, shepherd his flock and give them safety and security and peace. And whose reign will extend to the ends of the earth. Whose kingdom will not just be assumed to be worldwide, but whose kingdom really will be. The promise of God is a person. Born according to the word of God, to fulfill the plans of God for the glory of God and the peace of his people. In divine and loving providence, God is moving to bring about all that he has said that he will do, and he is doing it through a king. The thing is, the people's desire for a king back in 1 Samuel wasn't wrong. It wasn't a failure to long for the right things, it was a failure instead to look for them in the right places. The people wanted a warrior, someone who would fight for them. They wanted a defender, someone who would shield them from harm. They wanted a provider, someone who would know their needs and rise to meet them. And they wanted a savior who knew their peril and made it his own so that they would be safe. Their problem wasn't wanting the wrong things. It was assuming that anyone stained with sin could rise to meet their hope. But in grace... God has promised to send one who would. And in a way that upends expectations, that king was born in a barn, in an out-of-the-way town too small and too inconsequential to be counted among the clans of Judah, to a poor, unwed mother and an adoptive father without influence or status, because he has come in humility to give rather than to take. Luke 2 is the story of the birth of our servant king, the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament who would sit on David's throne, but who would rule with grace by giving everything for the sake of his people. It is a great reversal, the upside-down kingdom of Christ where the king is a servant, the first becomes last, and the lowly are exalted. This is the heart of the gospel, that though we stood guilty before God, condemned for sin, he willingly and lovingly shows us mercy by humbling himself for our sake. Glory exchanged for servanthood, the king who gives rather than takes. He is the king who rules in grace, whose reign inspired the reformer Martin Luther to comment that the gospel gives freely and requires nothing of us, but to hold out our hands and to take that which is offered. Thinking of this passage this week, I was reminded of an illustration that a friend shared with me last year. Imagine that you live near a river. And on the river bank of that river is a colony of ants that has made a big ant hill. One day you get word that a big rainstorm is coming, a huge storm that will cause the river to swell and to overrun its banks and to flood the area nearby. Because you know that the rainstorm is coming, it's easy for you to move yourself and your belongings to safety. But then you remember the ants. Their colony is right on the riverbank, and the flood that is coming is going to absolutely wipe them out. Now, most people wouldn't care about the ants, because they're just ants. They're a nuisance, really, more than anything else. They just cause problems, and they irritate. But for some inexplicable reason, you love those ants. You cannot bear to see them annihilated by the flood that you know is coming. So what do you do in this situation? You could go talk to the ants. You could tell them a flood is coming. You have to move. But of course, that wouldn't do any good at all. The sound of your voice would just sound like noise to them. You could go and, and and scoop them up and try and transplant them to a new location, but you would perhaps risk doing them more harm than good, and you might just kill the ants that you're trying to save. And anyway, they would probably just find their way back to the anthill that they had already built on the riverbank, anyway. You could try baiting them to a new safe spot on high ground, maybe by putting out a bunch of sugar cubes out somewhere for them. But of course, they would just take the sugar back to the anthill on the riverbank. In the end, There's no way that you can get the ants out of the path of this destruction unless somehow you could turn yourself into an ant so that you could go to them, to warn them in a way that they could understand and so that you could personally lead them to safety. To do so would demand both amazing compassion and amazing humility to trade your life for the sake of such pathetic creatures. It would make you helpless and practically worthless compared to the human being that you are now. Even if such a transformation were possible for you, how deep would your love have to be to actually go through with it? At Christmas time, we recognize that we were the ants in the path of destruction. We stood no chance of survival. The doom rushing toward us was one we had no power to stop. It was the just wrath of God against our sin. The waves of righteous anger that answer all evil and all wickedness. But one with salvation in his hands, who knew what we didn't, who saw what we couldn't, loved us enough to come here, to take on our lowly flesh, to trade his glorious throne for a humble feeding trough so that we could live. And he did so not merely by warning us of the danger or leading us to safety, but by shedding his own blood so that we could live free of danger forever. By standing in the path of the destruction that was bound for us so that it hit him instead of us. It is an amazing, humbling, life-giving message of hope that the king of heaven would do such a thing for us. And it began that first Christmas when he made himself low, an ant, like you and me, Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Philippian church, telling them that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The long-awaited king of kings, born in poverty, To oppressed parents and in obscurity was not celebrated by the world when he made his entrance because it was his will to come humbly, to live humbly, and to die humbly. I am amazed at the way that even Luke's retelling of Jesus' birth anticipates this. There is no great fanfare here. The creator and keeper of the heavens and the earth steps down from glory into the world that he had made the most unexpected and consequential event that had ever taken place in the history of creation itself. And Luke describes it with simple, straightforward language. He writes in verses six and seven, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. I remember what it was like when my son James was born. If you ask me about it today, I would go into great detail. I would tell you a whole story about what the whole day was like and all the emotions that were involved. I wonder what my wife Jessica would think if I described it the way Luke describes Jesus' birth here. If, if you asked me what it was like and I said, well, the time came for him to be born, and then he was born, and that's the whole story. The amazing thing about this passage is that Luke, who spends more time and gives more space in his gospel an account of Jesus' life to Jesus' origin than any other gospel writer, describes the arrival of the Son of God into the world using a single word in Greek. She gave birth, one word, because even in the account of his arrival, there are signs of his humility. He did not come to be applauded here on earth. He was born that he might die for the people of his kingdom. He is not a king who takes and takes and takes. He is a king who gives and gives abundantly. So Jesus explained in Mark 10:45 that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The title Son of Man was one that Jesus used of himself often comes from a passage in the Old Testament book of Daniel. In that book, the Son of Man is one who comes with God's authority and divine majesty. It is a noble and holy title. But Jesus, the Son of Man himself, will not be served. Instead, he serves. He gives to us by coming to be among us, to live as one of us, and to die as one of us. This is our servant king. So let us meet him this Christmas time, saved by his grace, rescued from his judgment, and brought into glory by our King, the King who entered our world humbly by taking the form of a servant. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, as we celebrate this Christmas, this year, we know it is so easy to be distracted to lose sight of what matters the most. Help us, Lord, to see you, to know your heart and the humility of your Son, born in Bethlehem, that we might have life. What joy it is to remember this good news. In the word of his birth recorded for us in Luke's gospel, we ask that you would do your work in us, to draw us close, to give us joy, and to lead us in exalting the Son, born that he might die for our salvation. It is in his name that we pray with hopeful expectation in our hearts and rejoicing on our lips. Amen.